Testament, the Bible tells me that Jesus loves me. But I'm not preaching that sermon tonight. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I, was, I, I had the week off last week, and I appreciate you uh, preaching for me. Of course, I'm just a fill-in too, so uh, it's always great to be back with you. Uh, last week I was in Goodland, Kansas. Uh, I had a real bad case of bronchitis and probably shouldn't have been preaching, and so I wasn't preaching. I was doing a congregational singing workshop. Because if there's anything better for your voice than, than public speaking, it's singing and leading singing. Uh, but it is, it is good to be back with you. Tonight, uh, we're going to talk about Jesus, uh, which is, is the right and fitting thing always for Christians to talk about as we get together. I, uh, I knew a man who really wanted to be a preacher, and he... he it was something that he had, had, had wrestled with for years and career and life had taken him here and there. And, and, and so he, he sat me down one night and he said, all right, I, I want to do this. Let's talk about it. And, and so we talked and I said, we'll call him John. And who knows, John might be his real name. You'll never know. But John, I said, as, as much as I love to hear that someone wants to give their life to preaching... Every time I have talked with you, and I've known John for the better part of 20 years, every time I've talked to you about spiritual things, it's come back to, well, what do you think about this issue? And what do you think about this position? And what have, you, have you heard what so-and-so is saying about this? And I said, that, that doesn't get us very deep into the character and the person of God. It doesn't get us very far into Jesus they're, they're interesting discussions. They're entertaining, uh, just like watching a brawl or a fight is entertaining. But they're not necessarily about Jesus. Some of them are of more use than others, and I'm not saying there's, there's never a time to talk about some of those things, but, but he always had an issue or something to talk about. And I said, if you want to be a gospel preacher, the message that you speak has to be more about Jesus, much more about Jesus than all of the other things that you could talk about. Since we've been here at West Ark, I've uh, been able to preach a little bit and have been able to teach uh, some of the classes and, and fill in and help. I had somebody come up and say, well, you're new in this neck of the woods and, and I need to know where you stand on the issues. I said, I don't know, which issues are you talking about? And so I, I heard about the issues that were important to him and he wanted to, to know for an hour and a half. Uh, we talked about the, where he thought a preacher ought to stand on this issue or that issue. And sometimes our faith becomes so consumed with a position here or a position there. Are we for it or are we against it? Whatever it is. And it can change just very rapidly and very quickly. Isn't it wonderful that the Bible tells us that Jesus never changes? And that there is something about Him or everything about Him that we can dig deeply into. He is presented as a foundation, something that is not changed, that is not shifting, that is not, not to be debated back and forth, but is to be, is to, we build on him and what he represents and what he stands for. And so tonight I want us to think about the foundation of our faith and the advantage, the true, uh, the true advantage of having a faith that is built on Jesus rather than a faith that is distracted by where we might stand on the issues, this issue, that issue, whatever we are. We've all got our favorite pet issues and things that, kind of like Chris talked about this morning, things that we'd like to go up to somebody and say, 
hey, doesn't this bother you that we all have those? But the answer is to sit down and listen at the feet of Jesus. You've heard probably that we ought to study the Bible in context. That's one of those good preacher things to say as you open to a passage of Scripture. But what does it really mean to look at the Bible in context? That means more than looking at just a word or two words or even a verse at a time, that you at least step back to look at something a paragraph at a time, or, or if you're doing your homework, a, a book at a time, or maybe even everything that a certain author has written, or maybe just maybe we could step all the way back and say, what is God saying in the entire Bible? And catching context means that we're trying to appreciate the message of the whole and how the small portion that we're studying fits into that big narrative and that story. And if the conclusions that we're drawing from our little study of just a word or two, a section or two, if those things seem to fly in the face of the big story, then probably you and I need to go back and do our homework again because we're probably reading something wrong. We're probably taking our own ideas and reading them into the text or somehow we've just missed it. To step back to see the Bible, to see the message of God in that biggest picture, I think we see Jesus in every book of the Bible. There is something told about him either prophetically, whether, whether words of prophecy like we're used to, that, well, he'll be born of a virgin, or maybe it's a system of prophecy like you look at the Old Testament or all the sacrifices and that how that whole system represents Jesus and looks forward and anticipates his coming. But on every page of the Old Testament, you see the Bible anticipating Jesus. And everything in the New Testament does what? Looks back to him to say he is the foundation of our faith. In Genesis, he is, he is the seed of woman. You remember the, the promise given, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, uh, discussing with, with the serpent. He said, oh, you'll get in a couple of blows. You will bruise his heel, but what will he do? He'll crush your head. And you read through the rest of the book, and, and you, see, you see God being, being very careful to pay attention to a certain family and a certain lineage, and the story develops, and you get down to Abraham, and he gives promises to Abraham. And where do we see Jesus in the story of Abraham? Well, in the idea of promise. Abraham, there is one coming through your line. Abraham, you who have no children. That's where the story is interesting for Abraham. But there is one coming through whom God will bless all families of the earth. And so Jesus is really the focus of that story. From beginning to end, Jesus is all over Genesis. In Exodus, he's, he's the Passover lamb. He is the one who stands in for Israel and his blood is painted over the doorposts and the door frames of, of the people of Israel to protect them so that death passes over them. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus is that boring book that we just skip over, but if we read the details, we'd see that he is, he is the priest and he is the altar. And he is even the sacrifice that is offered on behalf of the people. And Jesus is on every page in, in Numbers, which tells their story through the desert. He is the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud who leads them through the desert. He is, he is the one who provides their food and takes care of them and leads them to and through the promised land. And in, in Deuteronomy... As Moses is summing things up for the people of his generation, he says, God will send another prophet like me, 
And Jesus is the prophet who is like Moses, but even superior and better than Moses. See, see, if we're reading our Bible in context, what do we see? We see Jesus everywhere that we look. He is the thread. He is the theme that brings the whole book together and gives it purpose that it makes sense, that God is the one orchestrating time and history and space and people and nations and languages and all of those things to bring about Christ because he loves us John chapter 5 Jesus is making a point to the religious leaders of the day who are very very familiar with all of those passages that we've mentioned and all of those ideas and they they have come to see Jesus and they're they're listening to what he says and they're watching what he does and they don't recognize him And he's saying, wait a minute, have you been reading the same book that I've been reading? Have you read the same Old Testament that looks forward to and anticipates the Messiah, the Christ? Because if you you had been reading your Bible in context, if you'd been reading with the same view that the text is trying to paint of, of, of Jesus as he comes, you would recognize who I am. Beginning in verse 37, the Father who has sent me has himself born witness about me his voice you have never heard his form you have never seen and you do not have his word abiding in you folks he's not telling this to the out and out gentiles he's telling this to the religious leaders He's speaking these words to people who have memorized great portions of Scripture and, and who recite them to each other daily. You remember that instruction from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 that says, as you go through life, you know, put, put Scriptures over your doorposts and bind them on your forehead. These are people who have been observing those kind of commandments. They said, what do you mean? We have been steeped in Scripture from, from birth until now. And he says, guys, you, I don't think we've even been reading the same book. And you definitely have not been listening to the voice of the author. You do not have his word abiding in you. What's the test? How do we know if you've really been letting the Bible read you as much as you have been reading the Bible? You for, here's how he knows. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He says, if you listen to Jesus... If Jesus lives in you, if, if Jesus is, is, is Jesus in the morning, Jesus in the new time, Jesus at evening, if, if it's all about Jesus, then what? Then you've read your Bible correctly. Then something has seeped in. Then, then, then you get it. But if, if, if Jesus is not everything to us, then somewhere along the line, we've missed the point. You search the Scriptures, he says in verse 39, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have eternal life. Friends, this is no knock on Bible study and knowing the Word inside and out. I think we'd all be better for that. But in history, there have been people who knew the Bible very well as a book, as literature, but they were never listening to the author. They never let it permeate into their hearts. You and I could be much like the religious leaders of Jesus' day who read the Bible, who memorized portions of the Bible, but if we're not listening to the voice of the Father, if we're not seeing Jesus and we're not seeing the connection that He is the central focus 
of all of Scripture, then we've missed the big picture. And even if, our, even if, even if the words we spoke were Scripture, if we've missed Jesus, we've missed everything. To the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul would write, he says, when I came to you, brothers, this is the first part of chapter 2, the first five verses, when I came to you, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. And Paul was very capable of doing that. He was a trained orator, a good public speaker. In fact, he had just come from Athens, the seed of wisdom in their culture. If you wanted the philosopher's approach to Christianity and the wise way to understand the things of God, Paul is the man to teach it to you. But he said, when I came to you, I didn't come with that approach, with all of those words of wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my speech were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." And in fact, isn't that, isn't that the story of Jesus? Isn't that the motif that goes along with Him and the way God works? We, we, I don't think the first sermon I preached on in our Sunday nights together was, was from Ephesians, and we said something like, uh, God's power is displayed mightily at work in us because you and I are not the smartest and we're not the fastest and we're not the most good-looking. My wife is, but, but the rest of us, but God shows His power that He chooses to work in us, the least likely candidates. Paul would say something like, I am the chief sinner. And God shows His grace and His power at work when He chooses to work in someone like me. But even in the story of Jesus, you think and you read through Philippians chapter 2 that here He is being equal with God. Surely that is something that, that he is entitled to by his very nature. He is in very nature God, all right, but, but he chooses to give up the prerogatives of what it is to be deity. And he, he humbles himself to be found a man. Well, even among men, I know we say all men are created equal, but don't, don't some have a life that is more equal than others? Don't some reign and rule as kings? Don't some have all of the power and all of the authority and all of the riches? Don't, can't you live a pretty fantastic life in this world as a mere mortal? But Jesus did not come to this world like that. How did he come? He came like a servant. And I suppose if you were the servant in a noble house, even that is not so bad of an occupation. But Jesus came into a very lowly life. And you remember that story of his birth. He comes, and there's no room for him and his family. He's come, and he's born into a family of, of no account. And this is how God shows his power. And Paul doesn't have to embellish the story, doesn't have to, to talk it up. He just says, here is God at work. The baby in the manger who grows up to be the Savior who dies on the cross. And the people shrug their shoulders and say, what's so impressive about a, a poor boy who grows up and dies? What's impressive is how he lived. And what's more impressive is that he didn't stay dead, that death could not hold on to him, that he, he escaped death. And he didn't just escape death, he turned around and he punched death in the face, didn't he? He vanquished death, he overcame it, and becomes something of a first fruits 
something of a forerunner that you and I might follow in his steps, both in his life and his death and the new life, the resurrected life to which he calls us. Paul says, if, if I've got one thing to teach you, it's going to be Jesus. And friends, I hope our faith, if it is built on one thing, <coughs> it's built on Jesus. That he is the very essence of what we believe and where we put our faith, where we put our hope. Any other focus is at best a distraction and is at worst some form of idolatry. You know, some people can get so distracted by all of the religious questions of the day and so distracted with trappings of religiosity that they can lose their focus on what is most important, on whom is most important. They can lose their focus on Jesus. We, it's easy to talk about them, we can lose our focus on Jesus. I think about all of the religious people in Jesus' day. He was born into a very, very religious society. And people came up to him all the time with questions. And their questions, more often than not, seemed to be distractions away from the main event. We've already read Jesus told the people in John chapter 5, what is the main event? I'm here. It's all about me. Because God is speaking through me. God is acting through me. It's all about Jesus. And yet the people who had him standing right in front of them, the people who were there to hear those very words, they would come to him with questions. Kind of like, Jesus, uh, you Jews say you should worship down there in Jerusalem. We say you ought to worship up on the mountain. What do you think? And what was that? That was a distraction. In fact, that had become the chief issue for the people of that region in that day. By whose authority do you do these things? The Pharisees and Sadducees might come and ask him later in his ministry. And you remember, he just has to sidestep the question. What do you mean by whose authority? I've already told you over and over. I do these things by the authority that God has, has given to me. You remember the Sadducees and their pet issues. They said there was, a, there was a man who had a wife and he passed away and the brother had to take the wife as part of their culture. It happened seven times. Now she's been married to these seven guys. And, and what's the question? And whose wife will she be in the resurrection? I hope in the resurrection she gets some rest from all those guys, you know? And Jesus says, no, 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 you've missed the whole point. Because of the, the resurrection, you're, you're talking about people as if they're dead. And then the resurrection is all about life. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. He said, you'd only ask such a foolish question because you do not understand the power of God. He doesn't always answer their questions. He very seldom answers their questions in a direct way like they'd like. Because if someone is interested in issues and you give them an answer, what do they do with the answer? This is true in religion, it's true in politics, it's true in all of those areas of life that we can find something to argue about. You give someone an answer and it becomes a hold, doesn't it? It's kind of like wrestling. Now they've got a place that they can grab onto you and try to maneuver themselves for the next stage of the argument. Jesus is not about arguments. Jesus is, uh, I don't know, something about Prince of Peace. Something about his disciples are are peacemakers, and if you are a peacemaker, you will be known as a son of God. Jesus is about settling arguments, 
not about drumming them up to be all the more powerful. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Should we pay tribute to Caesar? Who is my neighbor? What is the greatest commandment? You and I might hear all these things as introduction to some of the great teachings of Jesus, but when they were asked of him, they were thrown in his face. Okay, teacher, what's your position on the issue? And Jesus over and over presents himself and his way to the Father always is the answer of every question. When I say that we should focus on Jesus and not the issues, I don't by any means want to, want to be known by any implication that we shouldn't, uh, shouldn't be all about studying the Bible. What is Psalm 119? Here's your test. Psalm 119, 105, what does it say? This is one that you know, even if you don't know that you know it. Your word is a What? a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. See, you know that one. You get extra credit. All right, so, so there's, there's verses like that, that that highlight for us. In fact, all of Psalm 119 is what? It's about the Word of God and how important it is to us so that we can know the mind and the heart of God. Uh, John chapter 8, uh, verse uh, 31, verse that was quoted is, uh, in, in the prayer with which we started. So Jesus said to the Jews who'd believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Surely there is great value in knowing the words of Jesus and knowing the words of all Scripture. Uh, John chapter 17 and verse 17, Jesus prays to the Father for the disciples, for the apostles, and he says uh, there's, there's going to be them and there's going to be the world and the world is going to come at them like crazy just like it came at me. So verse 17, sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. Uh, the Bible is important. It's necessary for us. Jesus, when he's facing the temptations in Matthew chapter 4, how does he combat Satan? He quotes Bible to him. Every time Satan comes at him, Jesus has Bible written in his mind and written in his heart to speak back to the tempter and to the liar and to the enemy. The Bible is important, but what I'm asking us to do is to realize Jesus is really the theme and the focus of the Bible. Colossians chapter 3. Paul will write about lifting our minds above all of the things that can distract us. And he says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And, and, and my, uh, one of my favorite words in English is, is this word nobility and noble because it's, it's this idea. Things that are noble are things that are higher. We, we don't really use that word because in our democratic society, we want to say all ideas and all ideals and all people, everything is equal. And the Bible says, no, it's not. The things of Jesus are better. And they're not just better, they are best. The ideals and the ideas of Jesus are best. And so if you have died with him, you have also been raised with him. And if you have been raised, you have not only been raised from death, but you have been raised above the fray. You have been raised above the squabble. You have been raised above the petty ways of arguing and issues and all of the distractions. If, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your mind on things that are above. 
not the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so as far as Paul is concerned, what's it all about? It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus from beginning to end. I want to look at a couple verses, a couple passages in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Here's the advantage of having a faith that is anchored in Jesus. There's all these metaphors. Your faith can be anchored in Jesus. Jesus can be the foundation of your faith. He can be the very bread that you eat and the very drink that you drink. All of those things say he is central and that without him there is no life, there is no shelter, there is no building, there is no provision, there is no protection. Hebrews chapter 6 beginning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by the something that is greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature of Of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the faith that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All great stuff that says what? Jesus has gone first. He is the forerunner. If he's the forerunner, then I'm the what? I'm the afterrunner. If he has gone into to the curtain, and that represents the Holy of Holies, which is that place where the, the presence of God was made manifest in Israel, it's, it's a picture of heaven on earth. If you had asked a, a Jew back in, in Jesus' day before, where does God live? Well, what's the right answer? Does God live in heaven? Or yes. Does God live in the Holy of Holies? Yes. So it's this picture that God, God is inviting us into that most holy, most intimate place through Jesus. He goes first, and as long as we're holding on to Him, where He goes, we go. He says that all this promise is made by something absolutely unchangeable and absolutely core. He says if you want to see the work of God, if you want to see the character of God, if you want to see how God is able to secure His promises, you need look no further than Jesus. Because in Jesus we see all the faithfulness of God. In Jesus we see all of the power of God. In Jesus we see all of the love and the mercy and the grace from God towards us. In Jesus we see a God who goes to bat for us. In Jesus, we see a God who is willing to spend all of that energy and invest himself in our helplessness. It's all about Jesus. From heaven's perspective, it's all about Jesus. The whole book, from Genesis to Maps, is all about Jesus. And so chapter 12, also of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud 
of witnesses. People who, if you read chapter 11, people who through, through history have by their lives testified to the realities of who God is. They've seen all these qualities of God played out and they rise up and they say, yes, God is faithful and God is trustworthy. So we are surrounded by people who are, who are encouraging us by saying, yes, God is trustworthy. He is worthy of you placing your trust in him. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to, to what? He says, you're tired, Christian. You've grown weak. You've grown discouraged. You've become distracted. The things of this world are very important and they're pressing. And I know your family situation and uh, hey, your, your job isn't paying enough and, and, and the boss is riding you. And, and you're, you know, all of these things that, that are, are important, but all these things that, that from our earthly perspective loom larger than Jesus. Paul would say you need to change the vantage point from which you look at life. He said when you're looking at it from the earth, all the problems of the earth look big. But he said if you'll just climb the mountain, he says if you will see things as Jesus see th sees things, from looking towards the noble things, the heavenly things, the things where Christ are, he said all these little piddly problems of earth. And it's not insulting to us for our problems to be called piddly and little and of no consequence. That's not an insult to us. That's a testimony to the power of God. Because from his vantage point, what are our problems? Are they insurmountable? Do they, do they not have answers? Or are they too big? From God's perspective, all of our problems can be solved. He has solved the biggest of our problems. Reconciliation with him through his son. And if he can handle that, if he can bring me from, the, from, life, from death to life, then all those other problems... He can handle those, and he can give me strength to stand up under those. And so he tells the Christians to whom he's writing the book of Hebrews, for all of the distractions that you see in this life that seem to be so big and that press so closely and that are so painful, fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus, the founder of than perfecter. Some translations say the A and the Z, the, the, the author and the finisher, the one who was there at the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis, and the one who's here at the end, all the way at the end of the New Testament, and who is through, through even this day still with us. You look to him, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. He said, friends, if there is any encouragement to be had, it's not in staking out a position on an issue. Encouragement is in Jesus. The courage that you and I need to face life is found in looking to Jesus. In the next chapter, the Hebrew author would say in chapter 13 that Jesus Christ is the same. You may, this one's another one of those that you know by heart, isn't it? He's the same yesterday and today and 
forever. And so he doesn't change. Our position on Jesus then never needs to change. Our position on Jesus simply needs to be big enough to to, to try to scope who he is. That yes, he is the Son of God. Yes, he has all power. Yes, he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the answer. He's it from A to Z, from beginning to end. And if you have such a broad understanding of Jesus and you give him the, 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 the uh, opportunity to define himself rather than us trying to define him and telling that Jesus, you can't do this, you can't do that. Just let Jesus tell us what he's going to do and not do. Let him be God and not us. Then our picture of Jesus is big enough if our picture of Jesus calls us to surrender before him in every way. To the Ephesians, Paul would say he is the one who fills all in all, 121. To the Colossians, to the Colossians, he says this in chapter 1 and verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the source. Friends, from beginning to end, it's all about Jesus. Can we say that one together? This can be interactive here on the last word. From beginning to end, it is all about Jesus. Amen. If you have any needs tonight, we can pray for you or encourage your faith by pointing you to Jesus. Let us know what we can do as we stand and as we sing.